Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So our first practice question tonight is one from me. The average dietitian exam score is a 23 and the standard deviation is two points. What percent of students get greater than a 25? And no, these are not real data points. Do not worry. They're just for the class. So this is a standard deviation question. And when we're thinking about standard deviation, there's a few things we need to know. So number one, Anytime you're thinking SD, you do need to know that it is that that means standard deviation. And you also need to know how to kind of how to plot it. So the best way to answer this question is to draw it out. So if you don't already have a piece of paper and a pen, go grab one so that you can draw it out with me. And if you're on the Facebook Live version, you'll see me doing it out. So the first thing you want to do is make sure you're drawing kind of a standard bell curve. And it does not have to be beautiful. So you draw your standard bell curve. So that should kind of be, you know, your little tails, your hump, and then a tail bend. So the first data point it's telling us is that the average score is a 23. So when we're thinking about, okay, average score, that's my SD of zero. So I'm gonna draw right down the middle and that median line is my SD0, which is going to be my 23. Now, knowing, right, that my SD is two points each, and what that means is between each line, there's two points. So if I drew my plus one standard deviation and plus two standard deviation, that looks like this. We now are going to say, okay, well, if I go to the left one to my minus one standard deviation, this is going to be 21, right? And if I'm going to the right, that first line, right, that's going to be my SD plus one. I'm going to add two points, so that's going to be 20. It's going to be 25. And so what I'm thinking there, right, is I'm saying, okay, well, what was what was this question asking me, right? Because I need to always look back on these questions and be like, okay, I drew out this beautiful picture, but what, what does it want from me? So I'm saying, well, what percent of students got greater than a 25? So if I look at my chart right now, I should be having my bell curve with three lines, the 23 in the middle, and then one line to the left that has the 21, one line to the right that has 23. So to answer the same deviation question, I need to know some data points. So I need to know that between SD minus one and SD plus one, that there's 68% of the population. The majority of the population is here. So I kind of do my 34, 34. Then I also need to know that between SD one 
and SD2, and also, you know, SD minus 1, SD minus 2, that that's going to be about 13%. So I, and these are the areas under the curve. And again, you don't need to know all of them, right? But you're going to be able to kind of lay it out because on my exam, right, your answers are going to be multiple choice. So if I'm thinking about, well, what percent of the population is over 25, I'm looking to, to the right of 25. So I know it's at least 13%, and then that other little part of the tail is 2.5. So a good answer would be saying, you know, like, like 15% here. And with this standard deviation questions, like I said, you need to know how to plot, and then you also need to know the areas under the curve. Another question could have been, what percent of students get between a 21 and a 25? And that would have been my 68% there. Next question we have for me is, where should a class B fire extinguisher be put in the kitchen? So when we're thinking about, when we're thinking about um, a class B fire extinguisher, what we are want to be thinking about is, well, what type of fire extinguisher is this? And this is something, right, I know I don't think about on a daily basis. So when we're thinking about our fire extinguishers, I like to teach them this the way when I go through domain four of my students. So my A fire extinguisher, we want to think, okay, it kind of looks like an A-frame bonfire. So if I have an, a bonfire, I want to kind of, you know, put things, you know, cardboard, you know, paper, cloth in it, you know, and that's what I'd use a class A fire extinguisher on. Class A also covers plastic and Rubber, please don't put that in your fire, but you know, an A-frame, like what I'd put in a fire, gets you most of the way there. For, for B, I think barrel. So this is gonna be things I would put in a barrel, gas, oil. For class C, this is thinking about electrical, so think cord or cable. Um, and then class D, I like to think disaster, right? If you know, this is our combustible metals. Hopefully you don't have those in your kitchen, but if you did, right, you could use, um, you could be using uh, class D fire extinguisher. And then class K is just for kitchens. So that could be used on multiple things. So you probably have a class K in your kitchen, but here we said, where should a class B fire extinguisher be placed in the kitchen and why? And this one, a few of you guys got right. We said kind of cooking in um, in the cooking area because of grease fires, right? Or by a burner for oil or grease fire. Exactly, right? So we'd want that close by. The next one, we have some vocab. And a common theme I talk about all the time with my one-on-one -on -one students, my group students, is the fact that with all the vocab on this exam, and unfortunately, a lot of this exam is vocab, that it's not enough to have like your Google definition or your Gene Inman definition. You wanna make sure that you have, right, your definition, my Dana definition, because if I can define it and think about it in my real life, it's going to be a lot easier for me to apply it to different things. So here's some vocab that I gave you guys to define. So I said, define each of the following terms and I gave you three of them, they're in inventory, so the first one is minimum, maximum. 
So this is an inventory style, kind of similar to a par. But instead of our par being like, oh, I want to have six seltzer waters at all times, you know, but I can get as many as I want. With min-max, you're saying, okay, well, I always want at least six, but I don't want more than 24. So I always try to buy within that range. So let's say I had, you know, 10 seltzer waters, I could buy 14 more, you know, but if I had 20 seltzer waters, I could only buy four more, but I would never want it to be below six. So the min-max kind of keeps you, you know, from running out, but also it helps you from kind of spending all your money on that inventory. So like I said, in my house, I use that on seltzer waters because I could buy accidentally so many, and I'm like, okay, well, you don't actually need those, right? How many do you actually need? Okay, six minimum, 24 maximum. You're never going to get through those. The next one is our economic ordering quantity. So our economic ordering quantity, what we're saying here is we're really kind of thinking about, you know, what is going to be the number of something I need to buy where, you know, kind of the cost of, you know, storing the item, you know, is kind of outweighed by kind of getting the discount of, of the item. And so what I like to think about here is, you know, like if you go to the store and they have chicken and it's like, okay, what if I get a hundred pounds of chicken, I can get it for a dollar per pound, right? Which on paper looks like a great deal. And you're like, wow, this is so great. But then you're like, okay, well, I have to pay $100 right now. And I also have to, I also have to store all this chicken. You know, I have to eat all of this chicken too. It's not really, um, it's not really going to necessarily be lucrative when you're kind of taking all those things into account. Where it might have been better to maybe buy 50 pounds of chicken at like $1.25 you know, per pound a little bit more expensive, but at least, you know, you're not having 100 pounds of chicken to deal with. You know, for myself, I always go through this with yogurts at the store, right? When the yogurt is 10 for 10, I'm like, oh my God, I could get 10 for 10 yogurts, right? It would be only a dollar for yogurt, but I'm never going to eat them all and they're going to fill my fridge, right? So it's better for me to get the two for three, because I know I'm going to at least eat them and I still get a little bit more discount than just um, than just buying one. And so you're doing that, like I said, to kind of say like, well, what's kind of that sweet spot where I'm getting a good price for buying volume, but you know, I'm also taking into account how to store it and use it too. The next one I'm talking about is ABC inventory. And so this is an inventory valuation method where we're saying, okay, we're labeling the different kind of types of inventory we have based on their value. So your A inventory is your most expensive. So I like to think about my A inventory. If I dropped it, I'd be like, ah, right for A inventory. So this would be like my meat, my dairy, my fine wine, right? I drop it. I'm like, oh my God, no. Or you let it sit on the counter overnight. And you're like, no, I'm so upset versus my C inventory. Like if I drop down the floor, I'm going to be like, Ooh, oh, well, I have more. This is like if I spilled like rice or like popcorn. I mean, that would be very messy. 
Um, but I'm not going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe it, right? Because it's, it's not that expensive too. So your A would be your most expensive, B would be like moderately expensive, and C would be like, you know, you can think C for cheap, right? We said A is, ah, I dropped it. Huh. The next, the next one is less of a question and more of a disease state. So it's funny because when I have my one-on-one -on -one students, I feel like there's always a theme. And this week, a big, big theme has been about cystic fibrosis. A lot of you guys might have not gotten a lot of experience with cystic fibrosis. And if you're on the Facebook page, definitely um, just search pulmonary and you'll see that guide I put on. And if you don't have access to Facebook, just shoot me an email at danajfryernutrition at gmail.com and just ask me for the pulmonary guide and I'll send it to you so you can have it. But cystic fibrosis, like I said, a lot of you guys don't have a lot of experience in it, um, which honestly my internship, I didn't get a lot either because there's different pulmonary centers around the U.S. And if you didn't do, um, if you didn't do your internship at one, you know, you might not have gotten a lot of experience there. So when we're thinking about cystic fibrosis, what this is, is there, it's a disease where you're having either a mutation, a deletion, or insufficiency of a protein that is causing you not to be able to transport your chloride ions and water properly in your body. And so this is resulting in a lot of mucus buildup, and the mucus is building up in your lungs, and then also in your GI tract, specifically your pancreas. So a concern with our cystic fibrosis patients is they're very, very metabolically active because they have so much work of breathing. You see this in our uh, COPD patients too. So they have a, a lot of increased work of breathing, and so they're burning, burning, burning a lot of calories. Now, add on to that with our cystic fibrosis patients that besides the mucus being in their lungs, it's also in the pancreas, like I mentioned. So because it's in the pancreas, it can cause pancreatic insufficiency, which can cause malabsorption. So these patients are super metabolic. They're also not absorbing a lot of things too. And they're also getting frequent infections too, which we know raises your metabolic rate. So these kids are at really high risk of malnutrition. So we want them to be on these high calorie, these high protein, high fat diets. And you know, you might be like, wait, high fat? I thought they have pancreatic enzyme insufficiency. They do, but part of the treatment for cystic fibrosis is that they're going to take pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. So the pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, if it's being taken correctly, should result in them having decreased malabsorption and hopefully can kind of achieve a normal growth besides worrying about their pancreatic enzyme insufficiencies. We also typically want them to have a high salt intake because they're sweating out a lot of salt. Um, and then a lot of the time we're having them take the water-soluble form of the fat-soluble vitamins because, um, because they are at such high risk of malabsorption. So definitely if CF is a new topic for you, definitely check out that pulmonary guide. And like I said, if you don't have access to the Facebook, just shoot me an email. 
Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.